that most human suffering is somehow tied to the breakdown of community, um, and which just means like our inability to feel a sense of belonging with another human being. So I learned that's something that I learned doing the conflict resolution stuff that I think I've really carried with me and applied to so many different contexts. You're listening to Wellbeing Creative, a podcast that breaks down stigmas and creates a conversation surrounding well-being in the creative fields. My name is Harrison Diskin, and I'll be sitting down with creators of all types to discuss how they manage the inevitable stress, anxiety, and health choices that come along with creating in today's wild world. Hey, it's Harrison. Welcome back to Wellbeing Creative, recording out of the Foundation Studio inside the Foundation Hotel in downtown Detroit. My guest this week, Garrett Kohler of Assemble Sound, is one of the most driven people I know, and oh man, what a great discussion we had. Because of Garrett's radiating passion for what he does, our talk lasted well past sunset, and every minute is filled with valuable takeaways, as I know we tapped into some untold territories for him. We spoke on everything from bidding to bring the X Games to Detroit, time spent practicing conflict resolution around the world, and his time as a warship leader. My friend Garrett is just full of insight, and I'm so excited to share this second episode with you. So, here we are, a conversation with Garrett Kohler of Assemble Sound. Hey, it's Harrison, and my guest today is a pretty outstanding guy, a visionary who can't be defined by job titles, yet gracefully fills the roles of label head, artist manager, and contributor to a scene that desperately needs an energy like his— Garrett Kohler of Assemble Sound is that guy, and I'm excited to have him on Wellbeing Creative today. Garrett, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. I'm really happy you're here. Man, that was the most generous introduction. Harrison, uh, I'm super, super thrilled just to talk to you for however long this is going to last. You're obviously, you already know you're someone I super respect and look up to, so just the opportunity to sit in a room and chat. I feel like we always catch each other at shows or at bars, and there's a lot of other stuff going around, so it's cool to just be in the silence of the studio and chat with you a little bit so yeah yeah thank you i'm really excited for this one um so yeah let's just kind of jump right into it you are you you came to detroit from chicago um and the x games kind of brought you here yeah sort of it's um it's weird to hear it said that way but essentially um it would have been like november december of 2012 Um, I started working on a project with a buddy here Mm -hmm. and, um, essentially we had heard that ESPN was going to open up a a bidding process the same way that the Olympics do where, you know, cities will bid to host them. Um, we had heard that they were going to move out of LA and open up, open up one of those, those bidding processes. Um, and we put our, we, we essentially formed an LLC and, uh, I don't really know how we pulled this off, but at the time, the city was before they officially announced bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was no there was no money to support this kind of project. And when we brought it up to like the tourism bureau or the mayor's office at the time, everyone was just kind of like, "What are the X Games?" You probably <laughs> uh, got a few laughs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was just sort of like, "Wait, skate? Like you want us to fund a bid to bring a skateboard contest? Like, no, right. no, no, dude. Like we're bankrupt." go back to Chicago. Um, and so, so me and my buddy formed an LLC and essentially got letters of support that was said, hypothetically, if the X games come here, 
you know, we'll support it. So we got those letters from the mayor's office. We got one from the governor. Uh, at the time, we got that via Twitter, actually. We hit up, mm. like, the head of communications on Twitter. And they were like, yeah, hypothetically, if they come, we would support it. So we'll give you a letter on our on our letterhead. Right. Um, so we got enough of those letters where ESPN essentially said, hey, this looks like it could be legitimate. So we'll give your little $50 LLC the right to bid formally on behalf of the city of Detroit. And all you have to do is come up with... 20 to 30 million dollars in four months <laughs> um so when they gave our little llc our little living room llc the right to bid on behalf of the city um i i i was living in chicago at the time but mm-hmm. i had been sort of looking for any excuse to move to detroit and that was sort of the the thing that pushed me to quit my job there and um and move here and i moved and for for all intents and purposes was sleeping on uh, a mattress on a floor in, in my friend's apartment who I was working on the bid with. Um, and we just went at it. And it was a, a really insane six months of putting together this bid. And, um, you know, we came down to us in Austin. We were finalists mm-hmm. and uh, and lost. Yeah. But it was cool. <laughs> yeah, so what does that loss mean to you? Like, how, how did that affect you? Um, you know, it was like the whole thing was so wild it was it was my first time really working um i guess the word is entre- entrepreneurially i don't know if that's the word um but I, you know i'd quit my job and i'd been i'd kind of worked in a couple different fields in chicago um but it was the first time i'd been like n- no paycheck i'm gonna figure this out fuck stability um and just work until you figure it out um, and I think that, you know, we lost the contest to host the X Games, but I learned so much in the process. I fell in love with this city. Um, and, you know, coming out of it, like, I felt pretty much equipped to do whatever I wanted. And it was the thing that really made me realize, like, I don't, I don't ever want to work for a paycheck or for somebody else ever mm-hmm. again. Um, and in that short time, like even though we lost, like we did raise $30 million of financial guarantees in mm-hmm. you know, less than six months um, and put together a bid that got, you know, national and in some cases global press attention. Um, and, you know, like I said, it was right before the city formally announced bankruptcy. So like, the idea that that could even happen and, you know, the idea that we could even become finalists for this things up against people like Chicago and uh, New Orleans mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, Austin, like Big people. Yeah, that people were, yeah, that yeah. aren't bankrupt. Yeah. Exactly. People were just like, that's that's insane. So, um, you know, it really gave me the momentum and sort of the, the courage to, to continue going on, on my own. Um, which is which is what happened after. after yeah, I mean, a lot of people would probably look at that more as a dead end and like maybe mm-hmm. give up there. But you know, it's kind of cool that you can take that and. Yeah, I mean, I I, I really really distinctly remember getting the phone call from ESPN, and everyone thought we'd won. Like mm-hmm. it was like they had done a public poll, like a national poll, and like Detroit beat everyone two x, mm-hmm. like all the other cities. Um, it, everyone on the ESPN team was kind of back-channeling me and telling me, like, you guys got it, you guys got it. Hmm. And it went all the way up to the Disney level of ESPN. People forget that Disney owns ESPN, ABC. Um, 
So it went all the way up to that level, and that's where the decision got made. So when I got the call, I had kind of got a feeling maybe the week before, because like we were like, if we won this thing, they would have called us already. Um, but so I was kind of prepared for it, but what I wasn't prepared for was I got the call, and at the time we were being funded, the bid was totally backed at that point by by Dan Gilbert. Mm-hmm. So I had to go, um, I had to go down to Dan's office and tell him that he had just lost this bid right. to Austin, um, and the the guy from ESPN was getting on a plane when he called me, and he just said, "Hey, you guys lost. Uh, I gotta go," and I was like, "Yo, I have to go tell." Dan Gilbert and, and the mayor and all of these backers yeah. that they lost the bid. They've invested all this money and time and energy publicly into. Like, he owns the cat. You got to give me something, man. Like, you got to tell me what I'm telling him. And he's just like, I got to go. Someone will contact you later. I got to get on a plane. So I, I went down to Dan's office and walked in, and there was this all like the C level people were in a room. And as soon as I walked in, they knew. They knew that I knew. So, like, the meeting stopped. Everyone stood up, and I walked in the door with Kevin, right. my partner at the time. And they were like, you look like you've got good news. And I was like, oh, that's a really weird way to start this. <laughs> and I was like, well, I've got good news and bad news. And they were like, well, what's the bad news? And I was like, we didn't win. It's going to Austin. And they were just like, what, what? There was this huge like uproar. Dan was like, I got to go call John Skipper, like the mm-hmm. president of ESPN at the time. And uh, everyone was furious. And then someone stopped and was like, wait, what's the good news? <laughs> and I was like, the, the good news is like, we can just build this shit ourselves. <laughs> like we just learned how to do it. Like we saw the whole playbook. We, right. you know, we priced out this whole multi-million dollar event, knew all the different ingredients, knew literally personally now knew all the subcontractors that were brought on to produce these events. Um, and I was like, yo, we got this momentum. It'd be really easy to spin up a brand. It, we could do it for, you know, a fraction of the price because people aren't going to gouge us the way they gouge ESPN. Um, like, this is this is per this is the most perfect opportunity to build to build our own thing. And we've already started. It's called Project Y Games. We'll mm-hmm. we'll 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 put a real name to it, but like let's let's really embrace this fuck fuck ESPN moment. Yeah. And uh they were like, Wait, what's the good news? <laughs> <laughs> so it's 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 just like they weren't it's following funny. You. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just it was really funny because like in my head, it was not at all this sort of, like, L. It wasn't at all, like, taking an L. It was very much, like, cool, what's next? How does How is this an opportunity? Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, so it, it, did, it did lead perfectly into sort of what was next in some ways. So what was next is Assemble Sound? Yeah, sort of. There was a, there was a weird interim, which was essentially us trying to... Um, to to build our own X Games festival, and what really happened is we lost all of our funding right. because everyone was really at the at the time. The day we lost the X Games, the next day is when the city publicly filed for bankruptcy. Right, um, which is crazy when you think about it in just a historical Detroit perspective. So at the time, all the big investors who were backing us were looking for like a big win for the city. And that's what the X game represents. They need something quick, mm-hmm. something big, a big celebrity infused global media platform. And when we were like, we can build something from the ground up now, we have all the ingredients. They were like, that doesn't 
that doesn't appease this thing we need, which is we need a global media platform to talk about Detroit in a new light right now because mm-hmm. we need to fill our buildings with young people because we just bought all these buildings. You know what I'm saying? Right, like totally. It was like a really immediate need. Um, so they didn't have any interest in building something from the ground up. It just took me like... Kevin and I probably spent six to eight to nine months, maybe a year, sort of pitching around this concept before we realized, like, man, no one's cutting this check. Like, no one really believes that this can happen from the ground up. Um, what, what were those, like, six to eight months to a year like for you? It was mentally? brutal. That 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 actually, um, man, I think I was working with my buddy Kevin Kreese at the time, and we were both, like, hopelessly optimistic people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny, we met, we were in the same liberal arts program at, at school. And, um, you know, I think we were just like ruthlessly rational, like this made too much sense. So someone's going to fund it. And we worked endlessly because we thought someone would look at the opportunity and be like, oh, clearly this is a good thing to do. Um, I think that was like a good example of misplaced optimism mm-hmm. in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, sometimes it takes eight months to realize that. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, pretty much a, a, a tipping point happened. And I remember probably like, I don't know the exact amount of time, but like, let's say six months into it, I just said, we had launched this brand assemble, which was going to be this festival and then lost all our funding for the festival. So I was like, Hey, if the whole idea was just like bringing people together around this at the time, it was like this question of what are we actually trying to build in this city? All this new development was happening. And that was like, I felt like the really urgent question on the ground in Detroit. Like what is all this leading to? Like, what are we trying to design and build here? Um, so we wanted to really activate around that question. That's what the festival is going to be about. So we just started doing our own events with the little money we had. So mm-hmm. We did a, a speaker a speaker series at the DSO on um, sort of new urbanism and brought in a lot of global thought leaders. Um, the mayor of Bogota, like one of the most famous architects from New York City, um, a bunch of a bunch of really fascinating people. We did an alternative policy conference up in Charlevoix that ran concurrently with the Mackinac Policy Conference. But then we were throwing shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a skate contest in the abandoned Michigan Theater. Um, so we started just activating around this brand, um, and it just got to the point where it was cool and we were getting a lot of attention still and people were coming out to these events in a serious way. Um, but there just wasn't a focus and it was clear that we weren't, when it became clear that no matter how many events we did, we weren't getting that, that $4 million check that we needed, um, you know, Kevin was like, I'm, I'm trying to like get married and like start a family. So he got a job with, with, uh, with GM and one of the other guys that we were working with started sort of his consultancy, which focused on like his focus area. Um, and I had that kind of moment at all. It's weird. Timing is like people underestimate the role that just timing plays in everything and sort of the fortuitousness of it all life. And that's how most, I think opportunities happen. Most things can just sort of get, if you point back, it's just like, Oh right shit, how did that happen? Mm -hmm. And some of it is just dumb sort of luck. Um, or however you see. What's some advice you have just to go off on a tangent here? What's some advice you have for someone who's, you know, needs to like, 
trust in that, you know, like, yeah, I, I think it's like, um, you know, I'm thinking about advice in the context of, I think one piece of advice is be careful what you say no to. Mm -hmm. Like I would say, especially if, you know, you're in your early, like at this point I was probably 25, 26. Mm -hmm. So like early, early to mid twenties, you probably say this at any point in your life, but, um, you know, my brother had really imparted this awesome piece of advice on me, which was like, say yes to everything, especially Mm -hmm. when you've sort of like moved to a new place or mentally to a new place in life where you're like trying to get into new things. You just have to, and build new relationships, just whatever you do, whether it involves like getting up or staying out two hours later than you would want to because of a bedtime or, um, going to a part of the city that you're not used to going to, or, um, you know, trying a, taking on a, an unpaid job that you feel totally unequipped for, like just say yes. Did you do all three of those things? I, at some point I've done all, you know, all three of those things for sure. But, um, I, I think like saying yes to things that you would traditionally maybe Mm -hmm. not say yes to. Um, and then just remembering that like you might not realize the value of a certain moment or a certain one of those yes moments for like six months. And then something is going to happen six months after that moment where you'll look back and you'll be like, oh, the only reason this happened is because I stayed at that club Mm -hmm. for two hours later or two hours longer than I was going to because my friend wanted to introduce me to their friend who booked shows at a venue in New York. You know, that's a really mm-hmm. weird example, but it's just like you don't like everything shows up, it seems right. six months later. So what was that moment for Assemble Sound where you had that right place, right time moment? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think it's like I remember I got introduced to Brent, this kid, Brent Smith, who was in this rap group, Pasolaco. And I'm not even sure how we got introduced, but it was sort of like, I remember being super busy at the time. And someone was like, you should get a meeting with this, this guy. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to make time. Like, I'm going to go. And we went to Woodbridge Pub. I remember got drinks. And he said, hey, I'm doing a, I've been working on this album with this group, Flynn Eastwood, who I had remember seeing like a year or two before play a show. Mm-hmm. And they were like, he was like, we're this rap duo. Flynn Eastwood is this sort of like pop, pop chick, Jax Anderson, with her brother Seth, who produces everything. And we did this collaborative project that doesn't really make any sense, but it could bring a lot of people who've never been in the same room together. Um, do you want to, do you want to help? do something for the album release. Mm-hmm. And I'd not really, I'd thrown a couple shows that were more tied to skate contests, but I'd never really done a show just on its own, like promoting a new album. Mm-hmm. And I remember just being like, yeah, this sounds interesting. Like, let's try it. And I love music and I love throwing events. Um, and, you know, that's really, that's the event that then led to, you know, me meeting Seth who is, you know, one of my business partners now who I started mm-hmm. Assemble Sound with because Seth is Jax Anderson of Flynn Eastwood's um, brother. And it was really after that show that, you know, I sat down. That's how I met Tunde Alonaron for the first time, who's mm-hmm. one of the artists who, you know, I work really closely with out of Assemble Sound. Um, and it was like everything really came from that that show. And 
that show and everything that's followed literally would not have happened had I not decided to go grab a drink with this random person who I can't even remember who introduced us. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of the times I say no to shit because I'm just so busy. And um, sometimes saying yes, even when you're really, really busy, to the shit that's not super obviously helpful or productive. You always feel like you got to say yes to the productive shit, the Mm -hmm. shit that helps you get work done. But like sometimes saying yes to the random drinks with a mutual friend is like the thing that changes the whole course of your professional and personal life. Um, so I, I think that would be like an example. The very basis of Assemble Sound in some ways was based on this sort of like serendipity. Um, the right thing, right time, man. Saying I, yes. Yeah, and, and I could, there is literally a million stories for the, you know, so we, Assemble Sound started and or the idea of it started around like let's buy this church let's let's create this space where mm-hmm. artists can collaborate share sort of creative and industry resources because we think that that could really spur serious artist development and to do that we need a space and that space is going to be a church let's buy a church and since like from that moment which was like um, probably like October, August, September of 2014 um, until now, which is, what are we in? September of 2018. So for the last four years, I would say every other day I'm looking at someone I'm working with going, how did the timing was just insane. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that there's like, I always talk to the, say to the artist that I'm working with, I'm sure you have too, is like, just trust the process. Yeah. Like put in the work, trust the process, put smart people around you and um, things do tend to take care of themselves. Um, And if they don't, just be open to pivoting. Ride the Uh, wave. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, Yeah, so... I don't know. There's, there's, like I said, just an endless example of. of so assemble sound turns into a a, a a record label inside of a church. Yeah, in some ways, I, I, you know, people asked us early on if we were gonna be a record label, if we are a record label, and I always really stayed away from that, mostly because I grew up in Chicago around like the Chance the Rapper world. There was a real um, antipathy to like labels. Like everyone fucking hated the whole world of mm-hmm. that labels represented. So. Um, I was like really interested in models for artist development outside of the traditional label model, which is artists exchanging their intellectual property for financing and services like marketing services, essentially. And, um, I was like, is for me, assemble sound was like, if you have this more community driven space and community driven development that happens, um, could you essentially do the same thing that labels do without, without saying we need to take your intellectual property. Um, so intellectually, like that's what, that's what really fascinated me from the get go. So like we didn't say we're going to be a record label out of a church. We just said, we're going to get a church and let a ton of artists work out of here. And we think something really magical can happen Mm -hmm. and we'll figure out how to fund it. Yeah. And that's like, that was it. And I, I like, if I go back to the very first, sort of business plans that I drew up for it. You know, it, it actually started with a, we, we wanted to have a hotel mm-hmm. connected to 
a studio space and we were going to fund the studio with a hotel. And then maybe four years later, we'd, we'd start generating some music-related income through predominantly sync licensing, which is taking music and placing it in TV shows, films, advertisements. And then maybe if we were good at what we did, we would start to play in like the record label space. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, like, that whole thing totally got flipped on its head, where it really started off with, hey, all these artists have this music, we certainly don't have a hotel. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we just start with a church, a broke ass church that barely has any like, you know, functioning amenities, but it's got a couple rooms we can put these broke ass studios in and we'll just start inviting artists into work and we'll take not only the music that they represent, but also music from all over Metro Detroit and we'll get, non-exclusive rights to pitch it for sync licensing um so for commercials and tv shows um and that's when we partnered up with nicole churchill who's Mm -hmm. our other partner at assemble sound and um and really everything has developed from that sort of core that core balance of like community driven artist development of just artists sharing a space and resources and then like the sync the sync company, the sync licensing company. And now as we've worked for like three plus years in this space, we've seen some really cool shit happen on the artist development front. You know, we've artists who weren't touring the country and are are now touring the world and playing Mm -hmm. major festivals and, you know, charting on indie radio and getting put on major Spotify playlists and getting big sync placements with national brands. Like this shit actually is starting to happen. It's at a small level, but like it's, it's happening. And well, the, the sync licensing seems really interesting um, and kind of cool with your uh, view on it. Uh, before, you know, you were here in Detroit, it seems like maybe a lot of these companies that are based here, specifically the car companies were taking, you know, uh, sync license deals from artists around the world, and you're a big advocate for kind of sourcing localizing. It yeah, yeah, and and honestly, we've like barely scratched the surface. Like it took us in the same way that like uh, when I went into places at the beginning of the X Games and started pitching them on it, they were like, "What? That what is this skateboard contest?" Like when we went in and started pitching the Detroit music thing. Mm-hmm. People were kind of like, that's cute. That's like a nice charity thing. But like, we get our, that's, we work with LA. Like, we work with New York. Like, we, that, that's how we're cool. And it took, then we went out to LA and we we're like, here's what we do. We're from Detroit. And people were like, this shit's awesome. We'll mm-hmm. take this. Mm-hmm. So then we built up a portfolio of work with LA clients and then went back into car companies and stuff. And just, we're kind of just doing that now. And, uh, and when you've got a reel of work that includes like Netflix and ESPN, mm-hmm. ABC and Comedy Central Apple. and Apple, yeah. they're, then they're like, oh shit, yeah, we can work with you on a Ford Mustang thing. Right. And then it's sweet. And then you work on, on, on some cool car stuff. And, um, I'm excited now. It's like, it's, it's actually a lot more fun to go in and take those meetings now that we've got like a portfolio of work that. You know, you, you make your persistence seem so, like, at ease, almost. It's uh, pretty astonishing. You know? <laughs> How do you stay so persistent in, in some, you know, when, when people are constantly telling you no? Um, I think it goes back to what I said earlier is, like, I, I've been, 
about Kevin and the X Games bid and how we kept working on it for so long after we had lost. And you were like, how did you, how did you spend six to eight months pitching people on this mm-hmm. and then end up like with it, the festival not happening? And I was just like, when something is so obviously right and true, I don't know. It's never been a problem for me to work for what's right and what's true, no matter how much I'm getting paid or not getting paid or how much work or not work it is. Um, and I'm, I'm reading this, uh, I'm, I'm reading this book, right? Or I just finished, I guess called principles by this guy, Ray Dalio. Mm -hmm. Um, um, incredible book. And in one of his principles that I think is really, really, really important is, um, he just he talks about the importance of recognizing reality in all scenarios, and it's it's largely related to building companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the way that he runs this company is this sort of radical honesty, radical transparency, and it's sort of like we have to all recognize what is real. And 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 for me, going back to your question, like how do I say po- so persistent? I think if you have people around you who keep you honest and can look at what's happening and go like, yo, this is real or this actually makes sense. Like keep, keep working. Mm -hmm. Um, like I can do it. Like I can keep working if, if it's still clear to me that what I'm working on is real and true. So like right now, you know, we just opened up the ceiling at the church, Mm -hmm. which was a huge deal for us because when we bought it, there was this um, essentially ceiling built across a 360 balcony from 1872. And our goal from day one was we have to tear out the ceiling. And it was very significant demo work, very expensive um, compared to like the money that we've had. Right. And, uh, but it's a I, restoration project. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's, it's a massive historic restoration project. And when we first got the church, I used to say like, I, it'll be out in two months. That's what, the first month of tours. I'd be like, Oh, by next month, we'll have the ceiling pulled out. Mm-hmm. And then it became like, well, like in like six months, we're going to pull the ceiling out. And like, here we are three and a half years later, finally pulling the ceiling out. And the ceiling came down and anyone who's gotten like the sneak peek and come in or stop by and has walked in and been like, Oh, just, it's just, it's mesmerizing. Like the space is ridiculous. And for three and a half years, like the reason I've been able to be persistent is because I've seen that vision of Mm -hmm. like, I wasn't sitting in a church with a ceiling, you know, I was sitting in a church like I wasn't sitting in the church with the fake ceiling and like the wall in front of the organ. I was sitting in a church with a 50 foot vaulted ceiling, a 360 balcony and a restored pipe organ. And because like I, I saw, I knew that that was real. I knew that those things were in there. And I was like, I can work every day for 15 hours a day because I know that this is, that this is real. Mm. If someone had come in and been like, yo, I'm a pipe organ expert and this organ is, is infested with termites and it's going to need to be pulled out and it won't exist. And I am a historic restoration expert and I know that these balconies are going to collapse as soon as you pull out the metal beams that is, are put across them to hold up the second floor. So like there was going to be no bal. If someone had come in and said your vision 
is not real mm-hmm. and he and and they are a more believable person than me like they would have they would have credibility in that space whereas i don't know shit about historic restoration i would have had to be like deter path i would i would change yeah yeah path change mm-hmm. cool like i recognize that that's reality now and i got to figure out how to adapt um but like i said i was i was sitting in that church opened up for three and a half years so it's, what do you say to someone who who has you know the equivalent of of a church with the ceiling that they, they can't see that, that finished product yet yeah, I, I think that that's why I love working so much in collaboration with people. So mm-hmm. I, that's why I love working in teams. Um, Who, who's on your team? Yeah, I mean, there's so, it's, it's, it's awesome because I think this is probably one thing that you and I both have in common is like you get your hands in so many different things mm-hmm. um, that like you have different teams for different things. But um, the core team that every day is at Assemble Sound is, um, is myself and, and Nicole Churchill who runs our licensing and Seth who is sort of like the music director, producer, main producer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's uh, Shaq, Shackleford, who is sort of our design content guru, like a, just a, a brilliant creative brand um, content person, just brilliant. Um, and then there's uh, Kaylin Waterman who sort of runs all of our operations um, and is just like the best spirit to have in the place and, uh, is really good at keeping people honest. And then there's, uh, man, there's Drew Giallo, who's mm-hmm. like the silent killer promoter yeah. in the it's city. One of the hardest yeah. Working. Who works so, so hard and is like, is great at, at, at keeping me young and like, and, and just knowing what's cool and what's not cool and Mm -hmm. what people get excited about and what they won't. Um, and then there's like Ryan Kerrigan, there's who, who does a lot of tour management stuff around. And then there's just like all the artists who work out of this space, you know, it's like, that's who, that's who really keeps me honest. That's who I have the most fun collaborating with is, you know, people like Jax or Sam Austin's or Nigel or. What does it mean to be an assemble sound resident? Yeah, so um, when we started the program, it was pretty simple. It, well, we, we got this building, and it was like, how do we do this thing we wanted to do, which is create a space where people are sharing creative knowledge. And so we said, let's build out as many studios as we can, and then let's invite artists in, and being a, which in, in the way that we're going to run the space is essentially we'll have a residency. I still remember whiteboarding all this out and calling Seth and being like, dude, this is it. I think I got it. So we're going to have a residency and we're going to have a committee who chooses residents and we'll have people apply to be residents. And I still like remember I wrote out the executive committee, like who would be on it. And uh, this is like two weeks. I don't even think we had running water and I already had a whiteboard and I was drawing out executive committees like this is going to be it. And um, but it was the idea was simple. It was 24 seven access to recording studios to bring in whoever you want. Um, treat it like a home studio. You can come in, you have the code to the front door. Um, and the only rule is that you've got to book all your studio time on a shared calendar. And in a dream world, when you know I've got the capacity to sort of manage the program, um, there's bi-weekly song critiques, excuse me, which we've, you know, we've, we've had off and on for the last three and a half years, um, which is just every, every other week you get in a room with a bunch of other artists and critique each other's work. Um, there's production tutorials, there's, um, you know, artist talks, there's essentially any programming that gets artists together in the same room 
and helps facilitate them sharing information about creativity, mm-hmm. about the industry. Um, and yeah, it's the, the residency. Sadly, like the last year I've gotten so assemble has grown so much and we've taken on so much that like I was running the residency and doing all of the accounting and the finance and the mm-hmm. artist management and a lot of the programming. And it was just like the, one of the things that really took, um, I guess got hurt, I guess it was the residency and the programming. So we still had, that's the thing is we've got like probably 50 plus artists now who have 24 seven access to that space. Wow. Um, but I didn't have time to program it anymore with things. So like it, it became way a lot less structured. Um, so it's cool. We're actually relaunching the residency now and, um, Kaylin's going to help me run it mm-hmm. and it's going to be more, um, like it's going to be a nine month term within a potential nine month re-up. So it could be a year and a half residency. Um, it's going to be a lot more structured and, uh, there's going to be minimum studio requirements. So if you're there, you got to work like a minimum 25 hours a week on music. We're, is we're that, really is that normal in the music industry. To, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, Seth is like, Seth is so mad about it. Seth's like, dude, it should be 40, 40 hour a week minimums. Period. Right. And this is like free access to these artists. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, in most situations, you know, you have an artist who is trying to get like a studio time and they're looking at it probably by the hour by the hour to pay for it. Yeah. So that's, that's like, that's what's, this is like the opposite. People love, you know, we have had some really cool people work out of that space Some Mm -hmm. some more prominent artists, um, artists that listeners would know, um, all the way down to high schoolers that you never heard of. Um, what makes the vibe of that place conducive to like any artists working there is that there isn't this sort of like economic exchange of money for time. Mm-hmm. It's just you come in and you're own, like, if you're here, there's one rule and that rule is you have to be working. And there's a sign that says that. Yeah. 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 If you're here, be here to work. Mm-hmm. And the idea is just like, yo, this is a sacred space. Like you, you don't pay a dime to record music in here if you're a resident. Um, and even if you're not like, I bet there is not one person in three and a half years who would be like, you know, I did, I'm not a resident, but I pay to use assemble and man, they're just like, they're such dicks about time and money. It's like, I'm really, really laxed about, Hey, Oh, you're, you booked a three hour session. You're the last one in here, dude. You can stay as late as you want tonight. I don't care. Just pay me for three hours and Mm -hmm. I'll show you how to lock up the place. You know, it's like, it's a very open space and the, that vibe I think creates really good energy for music creation. Um, so yeah, that's the residency in the space. You, you talked about writing out your plans like really early on on a whiteboard. Mm-hmm. What type of uh, goal setting do you do? Yeah. It's interesting. Like I never, I never really got into the concrete goal setting thing. Um, I don't know why I've, I've never been, I don't think I've ever been a very goal oriented person. Um, which is weird. It's the first time I've ever said that sentence and I, I'm surprised it came out of my mouth, but I think it's true. I'm like, um, 
I'm very much, there's a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig, which is like one of my favorite books of all time. And there's a quote in it that's so simple and it might not even be his quote. He might've been quoting someone else, but it's sometimes it's better to travel than to arrive. Hmm. Um, the idea being that like, like if you, if you focus on where you're trying to go, you'll miss everything along the way. And if you can't find happiness, like, right where you are, then, um, like, you're probably not going to be happy wherever you're trying to get. Mm -hmm. So um, I've never been goal-oriented because I've just always been, like, a really happy person or content. I don't want to say happy, but, like, a very sad. I've, I've always been a person who really tried to find sat satisfaction in the, in the moment. Um, that said, I did really, like, about a year and a half ago... Um, I uh, I met Paul Saginaw, who's one of the founders at at Zingerman's, mm -hmm. and out in Ann Arbor, Deli for for listeners. It's a really famous um, Deli restaurant. Deli I mean, restaurant empire. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's, it's like a sixty million dollar right. annually a company that uh, they and it's it's cooperatively owned. There's like thirteen different owners, and um, but the whole thing is really driven by this this visioning philosophy they have so the last like year and a half I, I picked up a book on on visioning and I've been really um into uh into this this idea of of creating um visions for yourself and your life and then creating shared visions so in the case of the company you know just to give an example of what this looks like mm -hmm. um the partners all wrote their own sort of visions of what success looks like five years from now. So it's, it's literally like a letter, like you mm -hmm. date it. Like I think when we did it, it was, you know, 2017. So it was like, you know, it's, it's May 6, 2022 and I'm pulling up to the church and this is what the church looks like. And this mm -hmm. is what my car looks like. And this is what the house looks like that I just came from and who's in that house. And, um, I walk into the building and this is, what my work looks like, uh, like my day. And here's how much money I make to do that work. And here's the type of person that I'm working with. And here's how my work is perceived. Like you get really, really specific and you actually have to write down this whole thing. And then in the case of the business, what we did then is got in a room and we were all like, let's share our visions with each other. Mm -hmm. And it's this really amazing moment of like, and it's it's your ideal vision, right? It's it's what your it's what your definition of success is. So then you all sit in a room and you go, "Oh shit, that's where you're trying to go." Like, oh man, that's cool, but I am not into that. Like, I did not think that that's where we were trying to go. Um, or it's like, oh, I didn't even think about that. I want that to be in my vision. Mm -hmm. And then we constructed this sort of shared vision, um, and it's a good that that sort of visioning process and, and actually defining what success looks like at any point in the future it can be five years. It can be like, you can do it for like this podcast. Like we could be like, we could have sat down at the beginning and been like, Hey, what would this, if this is successful in an hour, how do you feel? Or like, what do you want us to have talked about? And you just get that out and then you get on the same page and it's like, mm -hmm. all right, cool. Then let's do that. Let's That's be, a great exercise. Let's be, it's, yeah. So sometimes I'll do it for meetings. Mm -hmm. um, do you ever have any of the clients or artists you work with? Yeah. So that's like a new thing. Like I'm actually trying to build it into the residency when we relaunch. So we're going to relaunch the residency in January. And like, I want people to start with like, what's your vision? And what's cool then is revisiting that vision, you know, at the end of the residency and maybe seeing how it's changed. Um, and updating it. But yeah, I'm, 
I'm really, I, I've had all the artists that I, I manage do it. Um, and it's, it's been really interesting because with some of them, it's like they come back with almost like not enough. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh man, we got to dig deeper. You inspire like, them to. Yeah. It's like, you gotta, like, you gotta dig deeper and mm-hmm. figure out what you want because like, it's, it's really hard for, for us to create a process mm-hmm. that you can trust, that we can all trust if there's no vision for where we're going. And I think that's tough for a lot of creators. Oh, it's so and They just want to create. They just want to create, yeah. exactly. So the rest is like a second thought. Yeah, and I think part of like what I'm learning right now is trying to, trying to balance those two things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is like, visions can change. They don't have, they're not written in stone. Um, to me, I just think they're really good. They're really good sort of um, criteria for making a decision. So like if someone's like, hey, do you want to do this? Sometimes I'll like get in my head and be like, well, what did, what's my vision? Does, that, does this actually help me realize my vision? Um, if not, like, no, I probably don't. I probably shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you got to make weird judgments that way. But yeah, you're right. Artists... Artists just want to create sometimes. Yeah, and yeah. That and it's good. I mean, that kind of brings me into, the, like, some of the management questions I have. You know, um, you work formerly as a manager for Sam Austin's Flynn Eastwood. Nige, yeah. Nige? Yeah, yeah. So what does that entail? And, and, like, what are some of the differences between working formally as a manager and, and as Garrett of Assemble Sound pushing aspiring artists? Yeah, it's... um. It's really tough, actually. I'm, I'm like, really still trying to figure out the balance. Um, the management thing, as you know, is it becomes all-consuming in that, like, you... An artist just wants to create, so they will become as dependent on you f- as you'll let them become. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out, like, what my role is in relationship to these artists because if if you know some they'll just give you everything Mm because they're just like if i had my way i would just sit in a studio and make music um and then maybe like go out and shoot some videos and the budget would be as big as yeah exactly um so uh it's it's been like actually so i've been managing now for like a year and it's it's been probably the most challenging Mm -hmm. thing that i've tried to do in the last decade um mostly just because of the time that it takes and the emotional investment like you ride that roller coaster and as any artist or creative knows who listens to this like you sort of have to live in the anxiety in the in the instability of the creative life um and as a manager i have to like I already had that for assemble because assemble is like my own little artist career in mm-hmm. some ways, you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, but then now I have it. I I have to live in that with all the artists that I work with. Yeah, I mean, um, what do you do when when an artist has a bad day, or when you're having a bad day, and so is your artist, you know? Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, that's um, it's actually something I've been working on. Like, this is a very sort of real present thing for me because, mm-hmm. like, we we have there's a lot going on right now at Assemble Sound and I've found lately that like I've been my um my moods have just been a little bit more unpredictable than they normally are that I'm used to I should say like I'm finding out parts of myself that I didn't even know really existed 
um, in terms of just like my propensity to maybe get frustrated, which never really happened before. Um, and I'm really just like trying to figure out how, what is my role in relation to an artist that I'm managing, that I'm working for, mm-hmm. right, as their manager, when I'm feeling that way and they're feeling that way. And I think one of the things that I actually like is that um, it's a job. So, like, when I'm acting as the manager, like, sometimes when when you're not in a good mood, um, you just you still have to show up for work. And you yeah. have to, like you know, make the sub or you have to deliver the pizza or you have to like finish the spreadsheet. And that's just like, you know, I've, you know, I'm, you know, have worked really hard and been blessed to like be able to do this on my own and work for myself for a long time now. Um, but like, I still have to show up and do shit that I don't want to do because that's work. And sometimes I've realized that being an artist manager is like, man, my problems suck. But right now, my job is to take care of this artist's problems and not be a dick about it. Because I like for me to be like, yeah, man, you uh, money's tight right now. Well, it's tight for me, too. So good luck. Mm-hmm. Like that would that I would be. I would be being bad at my job and I should be fired, mm-hmm. you know? So I think part of it is just like remembering it's a, it's a job. But I think the, the flip side of that is like artists who are not my clients. Yeah. When they come to me with the same thing and I'm dealing with <laughs> artists who are my clients and I'm frustrated and my bit, like shit's going on in my work life and I'm frustrated and like an artist comes to me and they have an expectation that I will act a certain way. Um, I found lately I've, I've had to get just more honest with people and that, and I, I would, there was one way to say it, which is like, Oh, I have to be a dick to people. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, I'm, I'm going back to this Ray, Ray Dalio's like principle of just like being real with people, mm-hmm. which is just like, Hey, I don't have the time or the emotional capacity to have this conversation with you right now. Or like, I don't have the time or emotional capacity to even listen to the song you're trying to play me. And it has nothing to do with you or your work or your, your, your worth. Um, it's just the reality of like our relationship right now is like, this isn't work for me, so I don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. And if I say yes, I'm going to, f- I'm going to be fucking anxiety riddled laying in my bed tonight. And right. I don't want that for myself and you don't want it for me. So you learn to set boundaries yeah. respectfully. And, yeah. You know, you still yeah. Make people feel important. Yeah. Yeah. I like, man, I'm telling you the, 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 the brutal reality thing that Ray Dalio preaches, I'm like such a believer in now. Yeah. Which is, I'm just like, we let's just all learn to be more real with each other and have the faith that we can all like, we have the capacity to handle the truth, even when it's, even when it's a hard truth. Um, because like, I feel like real human growth happens when we just like have that exchange, I even mean, when it's uncomfortable. I'm sure you've heard a song and you're like, oh, I wonder who lied to this guy and told him it was good. You know, like, <laughs> on the oh radio my even, God, you know, like, I've been the person, I've, pro- I've probably been a person to lie. Right, you know? right. Um, man, I'm, 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 you know, it's like, yeah. And I'm sure people have lied to me along the way, you know, and told me that something was good that wasn't. But yeah, I just like, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get into like the radical truth game. Um, I like that. But it's tough. 
It's uh, very you, tough. you have like a background in, in conflict resolution. And yeah. How do you think that plays? And well, go go a little bit into your background with conflict resolution. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty simple and, and mostly academic. Um, so I I did uh, philosophy undergrad for the first like two and a half years, um, and then was like really sick of being. Um, so I did philosophy and religion, and then got really interested in religious violence. Um, which is a weird thing to be interested in, but I was kind of interested in like why people believe the things they believe. And sometimes the way to study that is like looking at the people who believe things so strongly that they do outrageous acts in the name of those beliefs. So I got interested in violence, religious violence, and went to Northern Ireland um, and started studying the conflict between Catholics and Protestants Mm -hmm. and um, the Irish and the British in Northern Ireland. And um, just kind of got obsessed with conflict resolution and um, got sick of like the theory side of philosophy and was just like, let's, it was kind of like applied philosophy then. And mm-hmm. I, I started doing a lot of field work, um, working with like paramilitary groups on both sides of the conflict there. And then went to the Middle East and did some stuff in Israel, Palestine mm-hmm. on, the, on the conflict um, in and around. Um, you know, Israel and uh, the Palestinian territories. That was with Lend for Peace? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's when that's when I was with Lend for Peace. Although I did research on that. Like my whole senior thesis was on Israel-Palestine and Northern Ireland. And how long did you spend in, in that Oh, I, I was, I would, well, Lend for Peace, I was actually working from the States. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was only in the Middle East for like six weeks. Okay. Yeah, that I just, I... I got brought on by Lem for Peace to run the program out of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to the Middle East because it was like a boycott happening and I needed to, I went and like got the boycott lifted was like what I got essentially oh, wow. brought on to do. I was like the, I was the, it was Lem for Peace was an organization started by um, two Jewish Americans mm-hmm. and two Palestinian Americans. And the idea was to raise capital for Palestinian small businesses mm-hmm. um, because economic inequality was like the one thing they could all agree was not helping the mm-hmm. conflict there. Um, so I got brought on to be like Switzerland, like the neutral, yeah. the f- fifth party. Um, it's a tough place to be in that conflict. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was that, that was, you know, I, I just, I guess like it's, it's a very, uh, that conflict, the time I spent there, um, even six weeks there was like, just mind or world changing um, for me, and and also I sp- I spent about um, eight months in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, like really a lot of fascinating things that I, I think I probably apply to like my life now. I think I really learned um, the importance of empathy, um, and which sounds like a very like cliche shallow thing to say but i i think that um you know the a fundamental truth that i believe about the world is that most um i'm a liberal and my definition of that is just that i'm opposed to like human suffering Mm -hmm. that's it that's Mm -hmm. all that's the only thing i apply to that word um and i think that most human suffering is somehow tied to the breakdown of community um and which just means like our inability to feel a sense of belonging with another human being. Um, so I learned, that's something that I learned doing the conflict resolution stuff that I think I've really carried with me and applied to so many different contexts. Um, and then the other thing is in conflict mediation, 
um, there's this whole concept of nonviolent communication, which, um, you know, I don't even, I can't even talk about it theoretically anymore because I don't remember most of the book that I read. But uh, I do know that like every day, the one thing I really try to do, whether I'm talking to an artist I manage or a coworker or, you know, my girlfriend or my parents is, um, you know, listening and communicating from a place of empathy. And the way to do that is by acknowledging that, um, that perception is reality, which is literally like when someone comes to you and they're upset about something, um, usually what happens is like blame immediately gets placed and then someone gets defensive and it becomes this sort of, you know, did you do this? Did you not do this? Should you have done this? Should you Mm -hmm. not have done this? As opposed to just like, how do you feel right now? Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, you're hurt or you're upset or you feel undervalued. And that's real. Like mm-hmm. you can't and, and you can't take that away from somebody. So like even if I didn't mean to cause you pain, you're feeling pain right now. And I've felt that before. And that's that's terrible. It's the worst. Mm-hmm. So like even if even if I think you deserved that pain, it's like fuck. When you when someone comes to me and they're upset or they're frustrated or they're feeling anxious, it's just like I don't need to make any judgments. This is real. Mm-hmm. And how do I interact with people and communicate with people in a way that always first acknowledges the reality of their feelings um, before before jumping into like the truth thing, which is like, okay, what's real? But what's real is always how someone feels. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and then we can look at like... It's all feelings. Yeah, we can we can disagree about, you know, a situational or, yeah, yeah. things yeah, or facts. Things, yeah, yeah, physical things. But at the end of the day, um, yeah, I think, you know, going back to conflict resolution, which is where this whole conversation came from, um, that sort of method of communication, I am like really have continuously for the last decade really tried to make a part of my professional life and, and my personal life. And I... I think I'm just like a much more stable person um, when it when it comes to like my interacting with other people because of that. It doesn't mean I need to take on your pain or take on your happiness or like I can. There's separation. It's just like acknowledging it every time. You can time. understand it without carrying yeah. it on your shoulders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my my business partners hated it. I, I had a weekly meeting called the feelings meeting. Hmm. And they, they, cause they thought it was like, it, it's a feelings are, it's like a pejorative. They're like, Oh, get out your feelings, yeah. get in your bag. Like yeah. you go make money. Don't like, get, get out your feet. Yeah. It's, and, it's like, it's too hippie. Yeah. And I'm like, man, that's the shit that we make all of our decisions off feelings. Yeah. You know, like it's always a gut thing. Um, so like, I think, I just think that they're, they're the most, uh, they're the most important. If, if you go through the world denying people their feelings, like you're probably going to, um, you're going to be, man, you might be effective, but I don't think you're going to be very liked, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, and to me, it's, it's, it's more important to like come out on the other side of this life and be like people to be like, man, that, that person like acknowledged how people, he was real. Like he acknowledged how people felt and he, he didn't try to manipulate people's emotions and like uh, use people, you know, like he was, he always, 
Those are some Tried good to values. Treat people as yeah. human beings. Yeah. Um, that sounds like a, a and really good leader. Thing. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I think it's like, again, you know, it's it's something that I'm very uh, grateful to, like the background I have in conflict resolution for, because I'm not sure I would have learned that shit if I hadn't, like, you know, gone and and watched, you know, Catholic mothers try to have conversations with Protestant paramilitary members who killed their kids in Northern Ireland like that, like seeing those conversations happen mm-hmm. and like seeing forgiveness happen across mm. like those lines is like, man, if I can't deal with like a fight at work, what does that say about who I am? You know, it, so, puts, it puts everything into perspective. perspective. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. For sure. And I think like that's the thing you know, anyone who works like super, I mean, it's not even people who work like super crazy, but just like perspective is so, is so important. Like always staying grounded mm-hmm. in terms of what matters. I would say that you fall under that category of people who work like crazy. Um, how, <laughs> how, how do you, how do you ever disconnect? Uh, I know like part of your personal mission statement states that uh you try to stay off facebook during work hours yeah <laughs> um, what do you oh what, my god i forgot about that. i did i had that one i put that one up when i was maybe at groupon i totally forgot that's yeah. like on my linkedin or something yeah. um how do i disconnect i'm like actually really 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 terrible at it like really really bad at it um because i find so much joy in my work there's never like a reason for me to disconnect because mm-hmm. uh, I don't even feel like it's work. So I, I should say that I'm, I'm probably unhealthy in that way. Um, but I'm learning how to take those moments instead of doing like a week long vacation with, a, which a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. I like really try to go running three times a week. And mm-hmm. like when I go running, I just like put in music and I just, I don't try to think about shit. Um, and I've been trying to take back my mornings. Mm-hmm. So like at least on the weekends, instead of like drinking coffee while I sit down on my computer and start work, I like drink coffee and read a book and take notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that book doesn't have to be, it can be about work, but it doesn't have to be about work. But it's just sort of like creating this sort of like sacred space and time within the insanity of like, a 16 hour work day, mm-hmm. seven days a week. Um, because for me, I found that it's not as effective for me to do like the four day, five day disconnect, mm-hmm. which is probably not true. I probably just need to force myself to do you it. Did it. You <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Yeah. I got to do it. I was, I was, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to try to do it in, a, in October. We're going to try to do like four days, but I don't. Do you ever meditate? It's so funny. I, I don't. Um, but I, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to start my, my brother started doing it recently. My, my Seth, my business partner just started doing it and he, uh, they all, everyone who does it swears by it. It's just one of those things where I'm like, why am I fighting it? Why don't I just do meditation? Um, but I've, uh, the running thing is, mm-hmm. the running thing is sort of like my meditation or just going to the gym is that like your physical. fitness routine there? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I just like, man, routine. That's yeah. like something that I, I think that... Let's dissect your routine a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm very much a creature of habit. Mm-hmm. Like, 
you know, whether it's my eating habits mm-hmm. or my, what I wear every day or, uh, you know, I, and the reason is because I, I like to create routine so that I can focus any sort of like decision making on like the important fun stuff, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to like, you know, what am I going to eat today? Although that's important. And I, I don't, I don't say you shouldn't do that. It's just me personally. I don't get a lot of joy out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, routine is like, um, I've been trying to become more of a morning person, which means it's like, can I get to work by nine? Yeah. Uh, usually it's between nine and 10. And then, um, yeah, it's usually work till about, um, till about seven and then take a break and go to the gym, go on a run. Mm -hmm. Um, and then usually stop and pick up either Subway or on off nights, Bucharest, because they're the only things that are open to eat that are fast food in Corktown around the church, Mm -hmm. around Assemble Sound, Mm -hmm. um, after 8 p.m. that aren't like restaurants. So it's like, if I need something quick, I can just go to Subway. Uh, and working hard on your, uh, sponsorship. I'm, I'm really working hard. I mean, it's terrible. I'm like, I'm, I'm down for something else. I just can't eat tacos every night. Oh my God. (laughs) They really, they really, or a phase like anyone else really, (laughs) man. But, uh, no. And then I'll usually go back and try to be back at work by like nine. So I usually there's like a two hour break of like workout, shower, eat, and then back to work by nine. And then I, I usually work from like nine. I've been trying to cut off, hard cut off at one. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like 9 p.m. to one in the morning. Yeah, I would yeah. like, yeah, so I would do like 9 p.m. to like 1 a.m. And then shut down, go so home, after read in bed. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then go home and then read, fall asleep, wake up and try to be back at work by nine. So hmm. that's like... I would say like a nine, my dream is like, <laughs> this sounds sick, but right now my dream is like a 9am to like, if I could get it from 1am to midnight, I'd be happy. It's like a 9am to midnight. And mm. then, um, yeah, which is like a terrible goal, but like right now I'm okay with it. I know I need to do that for probably like two more years Yeah, and then I can get to a more routine schedule, but like we just got too much shit right now. Yeah. So if I get in a good groove, develop a good routine, create some space for like spending time with people that I love within that routine. Um, then hopefully shit will be good. <laughs> but what's some advice you would give to someone who, who's trying to work as hard as you? Um, don't do it unless you really love it. Yeah. Like that's the thing is I like actually love doing it. Um, I, I love doing it. I even love doing it though when I worked at companies. It's like well, be, before I even worked on my own shit. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm like, what would be advice that I would give? Is one I would say don't do it unless you're wired that way. Um, but give yourself an opportunity to see if you're wired that way. So like, figure out a way to make work fun. Because mm-hmm. like I think most. I hope most people can do it because like work is how human beings spend the majority of our lives for better or for worse. And work doesn't necessarily need mean the thing you do for money. It's just work is like your human time, like your output. Um, so like figure out a way to love the things that you do and figure out a way to structure it, to do it most like effectively. And, um, 
you know, I don't want to say the word efficiently because it's clearly my, my schedule's not <laughs> that efficient, but like I am really like uh, about like segmenting my time. Like I hate, that's why I had that thing on LinkedIn, like try to stay off Facebook during work hours because mm-hmm. um, I hate like there's nothing worse than spending four hours working and being like, wait, what did I just like every five, like you don't realize when you check Instagram, that derails 10 minutes of work. Even mm-hmm. if you just check it for 20 seconds, it like, it, it can it, it, it adds up and it totally takes you out of whatever mental place you're in. Mm-hmm. So I really early on in my career developed a habit of like really being super self-disciplined when it comes to just like turn off turn off, turn off. This is what you're going to focus on for an hour and then come up for air after an hour. I'm sure a college career on Adderall helped me do that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, helped me learn how to do that. And then I weaned myself off Adderall and just kept all the good Adderall habits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that probably has something there's to no do with it. There's no pill anymore. Yeah, there's no pill. Yeah. I, I did. I, I It's funny. Like, I feel like I actually like learned how to work like this because of college and because of Adderall. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and which is a terrible thing to admit, but it's true. Like, I mean, it probably puts things in perspective also where it's like, Oh, at least it's not, you know, schoolwork. Yeah. 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 Exactly. That's been my mentality for a decade. It's just like, at least I'm not fucking writing a paper. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Um, but yeah, no, that's, uh, that's sort of my routine and, and, and how I maintain, I guess. For a while, you were working in the corporate, like, startup world. Yeah. You were a project manager at Groupon yep. during, actually, some really exciting years in the company. Yeah, right when they went public. I was mm-hmm. there, like, before they went public and then through that. Yeah, and uh, you you made the leap into the music industry. Yeah. What are some differences, you know, between, and maybe similarities between, you know, the startup industry and the music industry? Man, um, I think like the biggest one, and I'm still dissecting this, but the music industry is so, it's so relation, the industry itself is so relationship driven mm-hmm. as opposed to driven by like, like um, better software or more efficiency or... Um, better teams, like or even just metrics, or or metrics. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's I guess that's really the bottom line. Is right. like it's more driven. It's it's like most industries are driven by metrics, and the music industry has this really deep relational element, which is one of the things that makes it so special, but also can be so frustrating, especially if like, like for instance, I'm pretty good at the music business. Like I get the music business like I get like how money flows through the industry mm-hmm. or through the business um, and I get music like sonically like I, I have a pretty good ear um, but like I haven't been in the music industry for that long so I don't have a lot of relationships in the industry and it's very it's it's like one of the few industries where you can really get the business you can really get the underlying product and maybe even be really good at making that product. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this other element that you really need. That foot in the door. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. that you need to find success in its, in its, in its relationships. Um, and I don't say that as like a bad thing or a good thing. I just think it's like something that I've 
realized in a very real way mm-hmm. is like a difference between the startup world that I w- was working in previous to the music industry and now the music industry. Um, yeah. I, so knowing how important that is, how do you build those relationships? Yeah. I mean, slow and steady mm-hmm. and you trust the process and you, I don't like for better, or for worse. I don't focus. I probably don't focus hard enough on that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm such a believer in the artists around me and their work that I think if we keep working, like the relationship part will just happen. Um, I just, the relate, the relationship part, the thing that sucks about the music industry is the relationship part feels very transactional. Mm -hmm. So even when you don't like, there are people in the music industry, like you and I is even a great example, right? Is like, like we could do business together. Like mm-hmm. we could have a transactional relationship. I don't think we really ever have. I think we've done a couple things together, but n- like n- nothing that's be like product nothing related. Formal. Nothing like revenue generating. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? Um, but it's always this sort of weird undertone to relationships in the music industry. Is like you just they always because relationships are so much more important in the music industry. They always there's always this suspicion of like, is this transactional or is Mm -hmm. this real? And sometimes I hate that because I'm like... That probably goes back to Ray Dalio's principles of radical truth, you know? And and I think you can usually usually tell, right? There's a a gut. But like sometimes when when I meet the people and start building relationships with people who also have real transactional value Mm -hmm. and we, and I'm actually like, yo... I fuck with you in how you do your work. Like, please fuck with me. Right. Because <laughs> right. you're like, you're like, you and what you do could change, you have to really could make my that. career. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, that's such a fine, it's a weird feeling right. where you're like, yo, I really respect you. This actually has nothing to do with the fact that like, you could playlist one of my songs and change a career for an artist. Right. You know, like that's not why. Yeah. 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 Um, And then sometimes you're like, yo, I, I respect you so much that I'm just going to ask you because like, I think that, you know, what I'm doing is, has a lot of integrity and is honest and genuine. And you know that I really respect you. And like this, I don't give a fuck if you choose to do this or not do this. But you doing this will help me in mm-hmm. a very serious way. Mm-hmm. So please do it. And that is like, I'm, that is such a tough, I want to get to the point where I can just say that shit. Right, face and to face. Just face to yeah. face and just be like, and it's cool. Mm-hmm. You can say no because it might jeopardize your work. Mm-hmm. And I want you to just be able to explain that to me. But like, I don't know, the music industry tends not to work like that. It tends to just be like, way more secretive seeming and you never really know if someone does something because they like you or because they want something in return. And it's just, I don't know, it's not very principles-based in mm-hmm. the Ray Dalio sense. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that can suck a little bit. But I don't know. It's really cutthroat. Oh, Dude, it's so cutthroat. Mm-hmm. It's so cutthroat. And uh, it's so flippant. It's so, not flippant, what's the word? Um, uh, what's the word for like, um, 
ephemeral, which is just like, you know, someone, someone like your phone can ring off the hook for a week and then like as something as else happens. Call. As soon as you need that call, your phone is silent yeah. and no one will answer your phone call. Yeah. And I've like really tried to internalize that from a really early point. Like I've, you know, my buddy was a, um, a music supervisor on LA, chose, chose music for big commercials and films. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, he, he took a break for personal reasons. And, uh, when he was out of the industry for like a year, he said it was amazing. He realized he had hundreds and hundreds of friends. Mm-hmm. And he, he said it was like three people who would return his phone call mm-hmm. when he was out, like when he, had he was gone. To give. He had nothing like, to give. And he just, wise. he was like, I never thought that I would be that person that that happened to because you always hear about that in the industry. Right. Um, and it was the most drastic wake up call when I stepped away. And it was like, whoa, none of these people give a fuck about me. Um, and I think I've like really tried to keep that in mind, like for my own personal, like mental health, like a lot of these people probably don't give a fuck about me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't want to have to build transactional relationships. I just really would prefer to work with people that I actually give a fuck about in the music industry because it's a big ass industry. Mm-hmm. Like you can, you can find a lot of people who you really care about and respect. Um, there's as many. For, this is not a statistically proven truth, but there are there are two great people for every asshole in the music industry. Maybe three. I like to believe that. Yeah. yeah. It might be the opposite. I'm not I think, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do the calculations. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I like yeah. to believe that. Yeah. 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 So I'm just like, yeah, I'm really, I'm really focused on, on, uh, on cultivating those and knowing that eventually like you just keep working and something will, something will work. So what's next for, for Garrett? What's next for Assemble Sound? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the church, the construction is crazy right now. I'm so excited about that. I I just set up my own personal office in the building next door. So, um, yeah, we, we bought the, the two buildings next to the church. It's the, it's the, um, the old historic school that's attached to it and the pastor's rectory, which was next to the church. So all like 1872, um, and so we're going to try to develop this campus, a mm. place where artists can stay when they're coming through town, either to play a show or work on an album or whatever. Um, and then, you know, our offices moved out of the sanctuary and into this old school building next door. So we've been building out that office. And I finally, for the first time, have a, an office with a door that closes instead mm-hmm. of just like a desk in the middle of the sanctuary that everyone can walk by. Um, so I'm that's next for me is closing the door of my office, which is like the nicest thing. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, rehearsal space downstairs and we've built out a couple studios already downstairs on the first floor that are as DIY as they were three and a half years ago in the first building. But then, uh, the sanctuary is getting opened up and that's going to be, um, the core residency building still. So we're going to have four studios in there, but they're going to be, um, it's just like going to be the most beautiful place. And, it's going to have um, the capacity to do essentially live recordings. So mm-hmm. we're going to be able to do performances that we record. Um, and I hope to get to the point where we're doing those like once a, once a month or once a quarter. Um, and the idea is like to have that be a really, 
a special thing. Like when Assemble Sound opens the doors to the public to come in and experience a show there, I want it to be like, it's not like going to a venue for a normal show. It's very intimate. It's, it's very um, intentional. That's like a very, Mm. very important word to me. So it's like, it's not, it's not transactional. I'd never want to do shows. Um, The people who put on shows and do that for a living, um, it's like, that is the hardest part of the music industry to me. Like if you do that and I say that cause Harrison does yeah, that. That's what I do. Yeah. That <laughs> is, that is the hardest shit. And that takes like, Oh my God. It's, it's just so unstable and crazy. And this always anxiety and this, it's just such a roller coaster. And I just cannot survive in that world. And I know that about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to be able to, Whenever I open my doors for a show, I don't care if there's one person in there or 300, which will probably be like the capacity. Um, I know that like the like word the reason the reason that we're doing it is for is because we we have something we want to share, and if one person wants to accept that and come and experience it it's going to be the best fucking show in the world for that one person and for us. Uh, And if 300 people want to come, it's going to be the best show for that 300. Um, And we don't care because it's not like our business. It's Mm -hmm. not our business model, right? So I'm like, I'm another big proponent of like, figure out what your business model is and zero in and get really good on that so that the other shit that you want to do, you can just do for fun, mm-hmm. you know? So if like you want to throw shows, become the best fucking promoter and then like manage artists just for fun. Right. You know, if you want to be a manager, become a fucking good manager and, and then throw parties, mm-hmm. you know? Um, Cause if you try to do a little bit of everything, you're probably gonna end up like really anxiety riddled and not, not centered and, and probably not that good at one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's not true, but it's, I'm a little bit of like a, yeah, I like to do a lot of things, but I'm really, when it comes to like business, I'm like, focus, Hmm. focus, find your money in one or two places and then do the rest for fun. I like that. So do it all for fun, but yeah. Don't don't, rely. Yeah. Don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't Mm -hmm. need to rely on all these different sources of, of revenue. I don't know. Maybe that's bad advice, but. I don't think that's bad advice at all. <laughs> uh, what, what's up with your extensive knowledge of worship music? Oh, wow. Call me out on that publicly. Man, I um, I mean, I, I, I grew up in the church, so I, I was actually a worship leader as, mm-hmm. uh, as like a high schooler. I went to school, studied philosophy and religion because I wanted to be a pastor. And one thing that philosophy is really good for is um debunking all of your beliefs in anything Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i completely um like walked away from the the beliefs i had about the nature of the universe growing up um but you know part of having those beliefs was growing up in a pretty conservative um not a pretty conservative uh politically like my family was always pretty progressive but a pretty conservative um like town we have to make that difference yeah 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 yeah, totally um but like a conservative town Mm -hmm. uh very wheaton right next to wheaton college which is like a very prolific christian bible school Mm -hmm. um went to church in that environment um 
yeah. So I, I was, I didn't, I actually have the worst knowledge of music period. Mm -hmm. Like I would, I, in the music industry, I am so bad when people start talking about like, this is the shit I listen to. And I, cause I grew up, man, Kanye West changed my life. College dropout, mm -hmm. Jesus walks was like, I remember sitting in like getting that CD and sitting in my church parking lot and putting on Jesus walks and being like, because, I mean, there's gospel elements. It was song. gospel elements of this whole thing, but I was like, that was like one of the first things, like the first uh, albums I got that I was like, it was like crossover. Mm -hmm. I was like, I feel like I can rock this. Like, I can say these words, you know, I can swear, and it's still like, this is real. Like, God would approve of this. God approved what, uh, of yay for me early on. you to Chance the Rapper so much also? Uh, no, it's funny because, like, I fell in love with Chance in, like, probably 2011, like, five-day, ten-day, like, really. Before like, he was doing yeah, the Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I was, like, you know, in Chicago, spoken word, poetry scene is, like, where, like, I saw him read poems before, before he was rapping on projects. Mm -hmm. And, uh... And I, I just thought he's always just been like the most brilliant lyricist and um, stage presence out of this world. Just an amazing magnetic person. Mm -hmm. So I have known from early on, as most people around him did, like he was going to be very special. Um, I actually got turned off when he got like a little bit. I respect it, mm -hmm. but like I don't. It doesn't really resonate with me. Mm -hmm. And I think that like if he and I got in a room and talked theology, I'd probably disagree with a bunch of shit mm. that he says about the nature of the universe, like what is real. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's clear that it's been very transformative for him. Um, so as long as he doesn't like try to persuade me that those beliefs about the universe are real, I'm cool because I love the transformation. Like I, right. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it's been good for him. Um, I like some of his music. I, I, there's some elements of his music that, I, I are starting to come back mm -hmm. that kind of disappeared during his like super religious transformation stage. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm like in the stuff that he just released, I hear a little bit more of like the 10 day project and the acid rap project, which mm -hmm. I really like. Um, but it's like, it's no hate I'm for a that. Coloring book guy. Yeah. And I love coloring book yeah. too. There was yeah. just like, I met, there was some stuff on coloring book that I missed mm -hmm. that I missed that I loved about. I loved about 10 day. Um, coloring book was amazing. I mean, he's amazing. He's my favorite artist, period, of all time. Me too. Um, really? Yeah. No, he's my number one. Really? Yeah, of Chance all time? That's sure. crazy. Yeah, How yeah. did you first connect with Chance? Uh, I probably resisted his music for a while. Um, I tend to do that sometimes when when it seems to be like too cool. Wow. You know? And uh, my friend started working with Taylor Bennett, his younger brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as soon as he you know, played me like the first song they were doing. I was like, oh, this guy's amazing. And then I just started listening to Chance, who has a similar voice. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, just a huge fan. Yeah. Did did was did you get pulled in like during like the coloring book era or was it? It was before right that? before coloring book. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. I mean I am like, you know, in between acid rap and coloring book, but for me it's still just I mean, also I think the you know, him bringing God into his music has helped me connect more with my spirituality. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's really, really interesting yeah, to me. Yeah. And that's also, that's, that's cool to hear. I'm glad, like, I'm glad, I'm glad that he's doing that. You know, I think it's really important that. And I'm like a Jewish guy, you know? Yeah. Totally. You know, yeah, not. Nah, totally but, not. But <laughs> the, you know, you can, it's, it's, there's something that's so 
real about his connection and what he's praising in his in his music. That yeah, it's kind of like it's so it's almost emotional. You know? Oh, it's so emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean that. I guess it's funny because I say that shit about not liking some of those elements, but mm-hmm. really what I'm saying is I just missed some of the old stuff because yeah. I like when I listen to Coloring Book. Um, like the how ge- how great is our God refrain? Like right. I grew up literally playing that on guitar on stage at church, like yeah. leading people in that refrain. And when I listened to it on Coloring Book, I was like, I've fought going like in my mind, I've fought going back to this place. Like I right. don't want to be back in this place, which is why I'm like, but I loved it. Yeah, but I loved it on Coloring Book. And but for I me, like, I had no idea that he yeah, existed. Wow. So hearing something like that from you know a reverend on on the actual recording, yeah. you know, um, and a choir on the actual recording that that's powerful to me. You know, I like just jam it in my car and kind of let the tears fall down and let you know. Yeah, that's man, that's amazing to me, and I yeah. actually love that because what I I didn't know if it. Like we just live in a world that has been so sanitized of spirituality, mm-hmm. and I think it's like hugely problematic. It, yeah, it's a, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a huge problem. And I sound like an old man saying that, um, but like we are deeply, deeply spiritual beings, um, in the sense that like. spirit is almost to me like the the thing between it's like we don't have a language to describe it because it's somewhere between the physical and the emotional Mm -hmm. it like kind of goes in between and between all of that um and it's the thing that we don't we just don't have word like it goes beyond words it's Mm -hmm. the it's the things we don't have words to describe um but it's still very real and i i um and I think that that's like oftentimes where notions of morality and good and and evil come from, um, and right and wrong, whatever. And I'm really happy that artists like Chance, who are have grown up and really been champions of like um, elements of I, not even secular, but like sort of can coexist in worlds that are like have nothing to do with well yeah can coexist between the two worlds like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we w- like we can be religious and then be super hedonistic right and um are really honest about that duality and are interested in injecting like public discourse with elements of spirituality i just wish it wasn't always dripping with like the language of well, like old religi- religious mm-hmm. religious language, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm, I'm like interested in how you take someone like chance and that energy and like what he's putting out in the world and like package it into sort of not package. That sounds wrong, but like, <laughs> how does it start new it conversations? Like yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it does. No, but I mean like, how do you, how does that start new conversations as opposed to like reintroducing people to churches that are so broken right? or institutions that are so broken is like, and it's those connotations that will restrict that music. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm like hoping like what I hope as someone who isn't, who doesn't share chances faith, Mm -hmm. I'm hoping his music pushes his faith and the institution behind his faith as opposed to pulls people into it. Mm -hmm. I hope it does both Mm -hmm. in some ways, but like, 
you know, it's cool to me that you connected with it. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, that'll have to be a longer conversation. Yeah, for sure. We can get, do a whole yeah. other episode on that. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's great. As we wrap things up here, I want to give you an opportunity to share anything that we didn't touch on. Man, we touched on way more than I thought we were going to touch on. You tapped in. Yeah. Um, you really tapped in. It's been a good one. I'm um man, I could go on and on, man. That's yeah, the I mean, fun part, right? Basically, we got to keep our eyes on the Assemble yeah. Sound Camp because yeah. it sounds like there's some really good yeah. things coming out. Man, and I'm so excited to be honest. Like, I hate, there, there is this notion of like the Assemble Sound Camp and there definitely is. There's people that like I work for now, you know, yeah, artists yeah, yeah. I work for. But like, we're about to relaunch this residency, which means we're probably going to bring in like 10, 15 new artists. That's what I'm excited for. I'm excited for the shit that I haven't even heard yet. Right. Like, we just brought in this one girl. She'd never been in a studio before. Kayla, the intern, brought her in. Did they one track together. Best track, best first track I've ever heard at Assemble. I was just like, the fact that she's never been in a studio before just ruined me. I yeah. was like, this, you're, you can change everything. Potential. I was like, man, I just want to get these doors open again. Because when, when the doors are open and when those studios are full, like magic, magic happens. So it's beautiful. Man, I gotta, I gotta. I gotta figure out the finance game right now so I can get the construction done and then and then get the doors open so we can, you know, find people on Instagram and bring them in to sing and like. Well, Garrett, I think you dropped some really priceless knowledge in this in this conversation. Nice. I'm really, was, really happy about it. That was great for yeah. I you got you got into my head. I never said that I'm not a goal oriented person. Like I you think brought that out of me. That's that like, you are you are pretty goal oriented. You just call them visions. Uh, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe. Yeah, semantics at that yeah, point. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. You just call me out of my bullshit. You're like, yeah. No, Garrett, it's goals. You just you call them visions because yeah. you're fucking hippie. <laughs> oh, thank, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, no, man. thanks for having me, yeah. man. This is great. I knew this one was gonna be fun, so I was really where can people connect with you? Uh, you connect with me on on Instagram, Garrett Kohler, uh, or on I do the Assemble Sound one too with some friends. So at Assemble Sound is probably the best way to do Slide it. Slide into your DMs. Slide in the DMs. It's at you know Twitter, cool, Instagram, all the normal places. Garrett at assemblesound.com, two R's, one T. Uh, we'll get you into my inbox or info at assemblesound.com. Um, yeah. That's it. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Harrison. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, brother. Ah, amazing.